Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to the Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're very pleased to have on the show Claire Rukin, who covers credit markets for Bloomberg News in London. How are you, Claire? I'm good. Thank you, James. Very excited to get your take on the markets. Thanks so much for joining. We're also delighted to welcome back Tolu Alamutu, a credit analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, also based in London. How are you doing, Tolu? I am great. Thank you, James. And we'll be talking to Tolu a bit later in the show about distress in the real estate sector, so do stay with us. But first, Claire Rukin with Bloomberg News. You're all over the leveraged finance story. Leveraged loans, junk bonds, collateralized loan obligations, all the really risky stuff. Mm-hmm. For our listeners who don't know, though, what is leveraged finance? How does it work? What kinds of companies are we talking about? And, um, you know, just give us a give us a sense of what's going on. Okay. All right. So leveraged finance is finance that borrowers take on where their debt to earnings would be more than the better rated investment grade companies. So for all intents and purposes, this is junk debt and it can come in various forms like, as you said, leveraged loans, high yield bonds, private credit, and it's provided by various lenders, including investment banks, institutional investors, credit managers, um, and it's, it's basically everywhere. There's lots of companies that have leveraged finance that people would have never have heard of, but there's lots of companies that they would have done. So if I think about um, stories that I've written recently, it's for um, borrowers, including Morrison Supermarkets, Twitter, WorldPay, the payment processor, and Burger King's owner. Twitter now known as X, by the way. So yes, renamed. yes, that is right. Yeah. But so they, <laughs> these these are companies that we've all heard of. They are in the high street, so they're definitely you know identifiable. But so why is there a comeback? Why are they borrowing more money right now? They're borrowing more money at the moment because uh, for the first time in a while, I'd say about 18 months, um, the market feels calmer. Financial markets feel good. And it means that investors have more appetite for risk. Banks feel more comfortable about lending. And so there's like an opportunity in the market for borrowers to come and, and raise money. If we look at what happened post-Russia-Ukraine, um, there were issues over inflation, interest rates were rising, and banks were caught with billions of dollars of debt on their books that they just couldn't sell. Investors didn't want to buy. But now if we look at market conditions, uh, when people think about recession, they think about um, a lot of them think about soft landings. There's more visibility on where people think interest rates will peak. And therefore, we're starting to see a return of fundraising. There's a nascent return for the 1.3 trillion um, collateral collateralized loan obligation market. Um, and, And they need to put money to work. Investors need to put money to work. And therefore, borrowers are are seeking this moment to to raise more money. So it's more than just a September effect because we always see a big rush in September to issue 
bonds and loans and everything else in the capital markets. But there is something more going on. It's sort of pent up supply because there wasn't much done earlier in the year. Yes, definitely. And if we look at um, volumes for leveraged loans and high yield bonds globally, uh, September to date, around 41 billion has been raised. That compares to 16 billion in the same period last year. So yes, typically there is a rush in September, but the markets just didn't feel good last year, whereas now they do. Um, we haven't seen that much M&A come through. And so therefore, there isn't, there aren't that many um, new places for people to put money to work. Therefore, existing issuers of leveraged loans and high yield bonds are coming to the market and they're looking to refinance debt. They're looking to extend their debt. They're even doing deals that are like real top of the market deals, like taking uh, dividends out of companies. So they will raise debt. They will refinance their existing cap structure. They'll add additional debt on and then they'll take that back as a dividend and pay that to shareholders. This is really hot market stuff. When you say hot market and you're talking about leverage finance, it starts to scare me a bit. Should we be worried about this? <laughs> um, these are junk rated borrowers. Um, should it scare you? I don't know. I guess it depends what your view is of the market. If you think interest rates are going down like many borrowers are, then they will feel very comfortable loading up their companies with debt. If you look at where oil prices are today, crude crude oil is going towards $100 a barrel. If that's not a blip and that's going to continue, then we need to start thinking about inflation again. And will central banks need to start raising interest rates to deal with that. And then the market can turn very quickly. So at the moment, the market feels hotter than it has been for a while. But as we know from our recent experience, the market can shut as quickly as it opens. So let's talk about the deals that you're seeing right now. Um, what kind of names are we seeing? Why are they interesting? What kind of um, execution are they getting? Are they getting good pricing at the moment? They are. So we're starting to see some M&A emerge. Um, we just had GTCR, that's a private equity firm, their acquisition of WellPay. And um, and that's a massive company. That's $9.4 billion of debt across loans and bonds, dollars, euros, sterling. And it is the largest leverage financing since uh, the $13 billion to back Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter last year. Um, and so this is like a real moment for the market where we're looking to see what the appetite is, what the capacity is, where it's going to go, will it sell, how will it sell, what is pricing like. And although pricing is higher than it was, you know, uh, 18 months ago, it has tightened from the start of the year. And so people are starting to feel good about the market. And, uh, you know, sale of WellPay, sale of other uh, companies that we're seeing from an M&A perspective will, will basically encourage banks to to start underwriting again. And we are hearing about, uh, dare I say it, the green shoots of M&A. And they're doing more in the loan market compared to the bond market. Why is that? Yeah, there has definitely been a preference for floating rate over fixed rate. I just wrote something recently about this. Um, on WellPay, for example, they were looking at raising loans and bonds. Loans are floating rates, so you pay interest over a benchmark interest rate, and bonds are fixed rate. If you take a view that interest rates are coming down, then what you pay for your debt today should, in effect, be cheaper going forward. And that is why we're seeing loans upsize and bonds reduced. And on the demand side, the investors, they're taking a punt that 
things will go the other way, are they? Because they want floating rate. I mean, what's what's the investor proposition? The investor proposition is just put money to work. And we've got these new CLOs coming through. They are the biggest buyers of leverage loans and they they are they are putting money to work. Okay. So other than a big splashy deal, I mean, what what else is the takeaway for the market? Are we getting more transparency? Are we getting more pricing points? Are we are we able to see where risk should price? Is that is that the benefit of this? surge again yeah if we look at um, some recent deals in the market that have just gone through they range all the way from double b to high single b to low single b and we now have price points at those three markers within the market so that will definitely be encouraging both for um, bankers that need transparency on where investor appetite is and where they can underwrite and sell these deals at. But also for investors, they now have a reference point as to where things should be pricing. Um, Given the fact that there is um, demand, but not too much new supply, we should see the market dynamics kick in and um, prices could tighten further. And that means also the erosion of, of terms and documentation as well, because when banks were caught with a lot of debt and investors didn't have too much risk appetite, it was a chance for the banks and investors to claw back some control when it came to documentation. Um, so we'll see what happens. But if more deals come to the market, then then we could start to see an erosion of that. And as you say, markets can turn very quickly. When we started this year, we were very, very worried about leverage finance. We're very worried particularly about the loans because the... Um, you know, the, the interest rate isn't fixed and costs will rise for the borrowers, therefore potentially more defaults as the economy slows. Should we expect that to happen? I mean, should should we worry about defaults at this point? Yeah, something, it's something definitely to um, be mindful of. Um, and if we have a look at what borrowers have been doing, there's been a real push to try and extend their maturities so they don't have to worry about their debt coming due. Um, and typically borrowers like to do that, you know, 18 months in advance. There are some borrowers that were unable to do that and therefore they've got into difficulties um, and sponsors then need to make a decision. Do they put in more equity or do they not? And I think going forward, the strongest companies so far have managed to amend and extend their existing capital structures. Uh, we are now going to see some of the more risky companies try and do that. Um, but, you know, we'll have to see what the landscape's like and what the future has in store. But, you know, if if energy prices are high, if earnings are lower, um, the cost of debt is higher, there will be questions around whether these highly leveraged companies can support the debt structures that are in place and whether banks want to refinance their debt and investors want to refinance their debt or whether they're going to need some more support from their owners. And the reason why we haven't seen more defaults, do you think that's because the covenants are so loose that they, they're not forced into default at this point? Exactly. So covenant light basically means that um, we don't really know about defaults until they can't pay the interest. So in a way, that can be useful because it gives companies breathing space to be able to sort themselves out. Um, however, there are no early warning signs for investors where they can uh, try and reset covenant covenants to reset and they can work with the companies earlier on to try and get them through what might be a difficult period. Investors have had a great year in leveraged finance, leveraged loans, particularly they've, you know, 10% returns on the US loans um, this year compared to expectations of uh, zero to, to pretty negative when we were starting the year. 
so if you took on a lot of risk, you got well rewarded. Again, you know, I come back to the, the issue of the economy slowing down, rates still very high, um, companies under pressure. Um, are we just sort of fooling ourselves? Is, is the apocalypse yet to come? Has it just been delayed? <laughs> I have. I, I actually have no idea. I don't. If I did, maybe I wouldn't be be a journalist just reporting on it all. I think everyone would love to have that answer. But it is definitely about taking a view at the moment. Some investors have more risk appetite and they have definitely been enjoying this period. Others that you speak to are taking a far more cautious approach. They'll really have a think about the quality of the credit, the rating, the sector, and they'll really be doing a lot more homework at the moment before investing in anything. And the same can be said for banks as well. Before they underwrite something, they're doing a lot of homework work there is there is a lot of research going on behind these credits and their quality and how much they can withstand tricky market conditions great so before we talk to tolu alamutu about uh, real estate what else is on your radar what's uh, the next big story what else are you looking at I don't know. I'm looking for M&A at the moment. There's a lot of P2Ps that will be taking place. So public to private transactions. Um, we're hearing there's lots of conversations behind closed doors about those nice, big, chunky new deals. That's what I'm, I want to report on. And uh, we'll see whether it happens or not. There seems to be far more realistic conversations happening now between buyers and sellers when it comes to valuations the financing markets for now seem open so that's definitely um providing more con- a more conducive environment to MA. but we'll see great stuff claire rukin from bloomberg news thank you so much for joining us thank you read all of claire's scoops on the bloomberg terminal and of course at bloomberg.com Right now, we're delighted to welcome back on the Credit Edge, Tolu Alamutu, a credit analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence in London. How's it going, Tolu? Not too bad. Thank you, James. Great to see you again. Thank you. And as you told me earlier this week, all real estate is always hot. So we're very excited to hear what you have to say. (laughs) Thank you. Of course, uh, real estate is always hot. I think... um, People are always fascinated by what is going on in the sector, not least because obviously it is the largest um, asset class in the world, but also because it affects every single thing that we do, doesn't it? It's where you live, it's where you go to work, it's where you shop or don't shop. And um, I'm talking there about warehouses and so on. So it permeates every single aspect of our lives. So people are always focused on it. Also, given um, what happened in the markets last year in terms of performance of real estate, it's been at the fore of people's minds. I mean, the losses in the European uh, real estate sector, real estate bond market, sorry, exceeded 20%. And after that, of course, people have started to look at, you know, what might happen this year? um, How might this year end? Might there be uh, more pain to come? So let's have a look at... um... Elder. It's a real estate company um, in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a country that we've heard where we've had a lot of trouble. It just keeps coming up. We've already talked on this show about the Swedish landlord SBB, which mm-hmm. is described as the poster child for the country's property crisis. Um, what is the situation, Tolly, with Balder? Um, how much debt do they have? Where is it trading? How much trouble are they really in? Okay. Well, Balder has, I guess, differentiated itself from SBB in some ways. And I think one key way has been in them uh, raising some capital uh, last year and uh, in calling a hybrid um, earlier this year. So I think they are seen as 
uh, stronger than uh, SBB is in that they have been more proactive. I think that is a positive for Sweden in general because it means that rather than painting the entire sector with the SBB brush, there has been differentiation in terms of the returns that you get uh, from holding these uh, issuer securities. So Bowder still trades very wide. Uh, to put it in context, Bowder is uh, still still has one uh, investment grade rating, but it is trading or yielding more than even some uh, double B securities, all the bonds, all the senior bonds are yielding more than that. So that tells you that investors are not at the moment assigning much of a weight to the ratings. But what is the company? What do they do and why are they you know, trading so wide? Right. So uh, Bowder is uh, involved in uh, commercial real estate. They ha- are have a residential portfolio, but also have some offices and hotels. Um, so that it's a diverse portfolio. However, um, they have come in, uh, under pressure for a number of reasons. First is the amount of debt that they have. They are um, highly levered, like many in the sector. Second is the exposure to floating rates. So in the local uh, Swedish market, it, there has been a tendency to issue uh, floating rate debt. And as interest rates have gone up, the cost of debt has gone up, which has affected the financing costs, put, putting pressure on the bottom line and also putting pressure on measures like interest coverage. So they faced uh, some of the same issues that I guess other uh, SBB and so on has said. And I guess the uh, most important thing to flag is what higher yields has meant for valuation. So um, periodically, real estate companies will revalue their asset portfolios and um, put through those uh, revaluations in the income statement. For Bowder, this has meant um, a loss so far year to date, um, and there may be further losses to come. So um, the loan to value may go up further, not just because um, loans, as in the amount of debt that they have outstanding is probably staying high, even though they're trying to delever, um, but also because the value, which is the denominator, um, might come under further pressure. The fact they're in Sweden, is that just purely coincidental? What's going on in Sweden? <laughs> um, I think it, it's not necessarily uh, um, restricted to Sweden. I think a lot of the trends that we have seen in Sweden are also being seen elsewhere. And in that regard, I guess you can look at one issuer called Heimstad and Bostad, which is uh, from Sweden, but has operations in at least, I think, nine countries, including Germany and Denmark and the UK. And there they are seeing valuation losses in many of the countries that they operate, not just Sweden. And actually, the largest valuation loss that they saw in the first quarter of this year was in Germany rather than in Sweden. So it, I, I would say that, yes, the challenges or the focus seems to be on what's going on in the Swedish market, but um, some of those trends are being seen elsewhere also. The differentiator, I guess, may be that um, the focus on floating rate debt was more significant in Sweden. So as rates have gone up, 
um, that's affected financing costs a lot more than perhaps some of the other European peers. Of course, that's a problem not just in the real estate sector. It's you know across the board. We were just talking to Claire Rukin earlier from Bloomberg News about the problems in in the loans, you know, the challenges in the loans, but also the opportunities right now to to refinance those loans and you know take advantage of, of the demand. Why why can't companies like Balder and SPB just you know take on new debt and refinance that? Right. So, I mean, we have seen some companies um, come to the Swedish market, and we've seen. Very few come back to the euro market as well, but not like they could before. So um, to use one example, Castellum, which is another Swedish name, has recently issued um, a bond, a two year bond in the Swedish krona market, which was the first time they had issued, I think, since April or so of 2022. So that return is a positive. But for an issuer like SBB, where the bonds are still trading at very, very distressed levels, I think um, for them, it wouldn't be possible really to come back to the markets. And so for them, um, at this point, perhaps it's best if they continue to negotiate with existing creditors to try and secure more funding to fill um, the hole that they have personally disclosed uh, for the next 12 months. So for SBB, I think it's more tricky. Um, Bowder has not uh, has issued a convertible, but has not issued um, senior unsecured debt very recently. We'll see whether they'll be able to do that uh, soon. But I think for some of the issuers that are still trading at relatively high yields, there may be a preference for um, disposals, for private placements, anything sort of away from the public bond market while their debt remains at distress levels. But there are some that have been able to um, access the markets, like Castellum, as I mentioned. So if we zoom out a bit, what's the root cause of all this um trouble in real estate i mean is it still a hangover from, from the pandemic is it return to office is it something else because you know as you started um the, the podcast explaining you know it is such a fundamental business we all need somewhere to live mm -hmm. you know so why why is real estate just struggling so much right now i think it's a combination of things but i think that what really made the sector come unstuck or what has really made the sector come unstuck has been the pace and the uh quantity of rate rises. So real estate is dependent on um, valuations, as we mentioned. So when rates were zero or near zero, um, you probably didn't have to demand um, that much in terms of uh, you, when you were asking for rent or you didn't have to put through significant rent increases. Your costs were kept low. You could finance very cheaply, which is extremely important. You could have transactions go through. You could sell real estate, buy real estate if you wanted to. And many of those companies actually were acquirers coming into the rate rise period. So um, Heimstaden is one prime example. They um, did a very significant acquisition in 2021, just before rates started to rise. There's also Vernovia, which is a, the largest residential landlord in Germany. They also did a significant uh, transaction in 2021. Now, not that those transactions in themselves were bad, but the timing meant that they happened just before rates started to rise. And as rates rise in general, the valuation of real estate um, can has or may be adjusted downwards. So um, 
the rate rises have affected valuations, but have also affected um, the access to financing and they've affected the transactions market. So we're seeing much less buying and selling in real estate than we did before. And that applies not just to the housing markets, but also to the office and other markets as well. And is this a, some, something that um, is a bigger problem than just Sweden or even Europe? I mean, does it, is it, is it a global issue? Are we, you know, is this an illustration of something that, you know, you could start to see in other parts mm-hmm. of the world? And we already are seeing lots of stress yeah. in commercial, but, but is this you know, something you think is, is emblematic of a bigger global problem? I think it's fair to say that it is. So we recently had a, a webinar with one of our colleagues that covers real estate in China, for yeah. instance. Yeah. And obviously there the, um, uh, challenges are very, very well known and are not yet resolved. Mm. And in the US as well, uh, we have colleagues that have cov- that are covering um, offices and other sec- uh, subsectors that are also um, coming under pressure because of the work from home trends and because of high rates. Yeah. So I'd, I'd say it's not necessarily something that's restricted to Europe. Um, it's it's a sector where we are seeing some stress, difference in some ways, but some stress uh, globally as well. And is there a read through for other sectors? I mean, how exposed are the banks to all this? Yeah, I, I think there's a, the read through is it can be significant for a number of sectors. Obviously, banks is the most obvious mm. because they tend to be the key lenders to real estate, but also because real estate can serve as collateral against loans that have nothing to do with real estate. So um, people can use their houses as security for loans to do something that's completely unrelated yeah. to the home. So banks are seen as exposed, but I think the exposure does differ quite a bit. And judging from reading uh, my bank colleagues' research, <laughs> um, the, the general view seems to be that they are in a better position now than perhaps they were historically to deal with crises like this because of the amount of provisions that they've set aside and because the regulator, I think, has been a little bit more proactive. Um, Having said that, uh, there are banks like in the Nordics whose ratings have come under pressure because of their exposure to real estate. So banks is an obvious one, Um, but it's not just restricted to banks because we do know that um, non-banks have invested directly in real estate as well. So everyone from asset managers to insurers and so on um, is interested in what happens or exposed to what might happen in the sector. What's the next big thing to watch, Tolu? Anything else on your radar that we should be looking at? Um, As I said, real estate is always hot. So I would still say that we should look out um, for all things happening in the sector. But if I was to be more specific than that, given my clear bias to always uh, consider real estate important, um, I'd say that first of of, of all, what happens with rates is vital. Um, so if rates are going to stay this high for long, then we need to um, see many more real estate companies taking decisive action on their, their debt because they may be okay for this year, but there's still significant amounts of debt coming due in 2024 and 2025. Um, looking at the figures earlier today, um, this over 30 billion due next year for European real estate issuers, and then another 40 odd billion due in the year after that. So rates, I think, um, are crucial 
to watch. The next thing that's crucial is what happens in the primary market. So we've seen a very significant drop off in the amount of of, uh, new deals, new bonds that are placed. So this year, I believe the total amount issued by European real estate issuers is less than 11 billion euros equivalent compared to, I think, 80 billion or so in 2021 and 30 odd billion or so last year. So um, if the primary markets open up in a significant way, that will ease the pressures that there are in the uh, about funding or the questions that there have been about uh, funding for these issuers and people won't be worried about all that those issuers have coming due. Thanks very much. Tolu Alamutu of Bloomberg Intelligence. You can read all of her great analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal. Do check it out. And we hope to see you back on the show soon, Tolu. Thank you, James. And thanks again to Claire Rukin from Bloomberg News. Read all of her great credit scoops on the Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google and Spotify. Give us a review, tell your friends or email me directly at jcrumbie 8 at Bloomberg.net. That's J. Crumbie, C-R-O-M-B-I-E, as in my surname, and the number eight at Bloomberg.net. I'm James Crumbie. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next week on The Credit Edge. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.